0: always enjoyed movies that have to do with the sea, with the ocean. I don't know if you feel the same way. There's something about the mystery of the depths of the ocean that can be really, really captivating. One of my favorites, this might sound strange, but one of my favorites was The Perfect Storm. Have you seen this movie? It was released in 2000. It was based on a novel published in 1997 by Sebastian Younger. And it recounts the true story of a commercial fishing vessel named the Andrea Gale that was lost at sea in October 1991 during a Category 1 hurricane. That hurricane has been called the no-name storm, as well as the perfect storm. It was a confluence of several weather events that peaked into this very strange and powerful and dangerous storm off the coast of the Northeastern United States. There were reports of waves up to 100 feet, though most have said the average was only 30 or 60 feet. Still enough to create some problems for anyone in the midst of the storm. Now the movie follows the crew of the Andrea Gale as they slowly begin to realize that this storm is something unique. They had already started making their way back to shore, but unfortunately it was too late they were not fast enough. Now, I say that these types of stories fascinate me, but of course, there's a very harsh reality for anyone who has experienced this kind of danger firsthand. And certainly native Louisianans know a thing or two about dangerous storms. In our story from the Gospel of John today, we also hear about some disciples of Jesus who are quite familiar with the dangers of the sea. As we continue in our sermon series, Signs for Life, we examine today the fifth sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus walking on water. It's found in John 6, 16 through 25, and I invite you to hear this scripture together this morning when evening came his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum and it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing When they had rowed about three or four miles, roughly out to the middle of the sea, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The next day... The crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. They also saw that Jesus had not gotten into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I love that last part. We've been journeying through these signs of Jesus for several weeks now, bumping up against recurring themes that John wants the reader to see. And one of these themes has been that signs always point to some other deeper message or reality. With the sense that, the sign or the miracle itself is merely the vehicle for reflecting on something else. And namely, for John, that something else is Jesus's significance and uniqueness. Now, each of the other signs we've looked at have allowed us some wiggle room to get a little practical with our reflections. In John 2, Jesus turns water into wine, saving the party and demonstrating that life and abundance are part of Jesus' ministry and that his disciples are called to pursue the same. And so we leave that passage with a challenge to bring life and abundance into the world around us. In John 4 and 5, Jesus heals two people a royal official's son. And the man by the pool at Bethsaida. And we're challenged not only with recognizing Jesus' healing power, but also with reflecting on how we can bring healing into the world. And last week, from the beginning of John 6, we saw how Jesus fed 5,000 people, obviously, helping us also reflect on how we might take this bread of life that we have been given and share it with others. And today, Jesus just walks on water. And I don't say just walks on water, as if this isn't impressive or a display of power, but to say that it doesn't really seem to do anything. It's not feeding anyone, it's not healing anyone. And Jesus doesn't even tell the disciples why he's doing it just this miraculous, strange display of otherworldly power, otherworldly control over the forces of nature. And everyone sees it, they're wowed by it, and the story just kind of moves on, leaving everyone a little bit puzzled. There's nothing of real practical importance here, just a weird display of Jesus's power and ability, as if He was saying, hey, y'all, I can do some really cool, awesome things. Isn't that neat? And this creates a little bit of a challenge for us because it's natural for us when we come to the Bible to search for a takeaway, some practical challenge for the week, something that we can incorporate into our lives to increase our faith, to serve more lovingly or whatever the case may be, all wonderful things, by the way. It certainly makes preaching a lot easier when the text lends itself to something like that. Then there are passages like this, where it's a little less practical, a little less intellect-oriented, and perhaps a little bit more heart-oriented. To situate the story in the Gospel overall, we want to be clear on John's purposes for writing. It's the same purpose, by the way, that John has for all of the signs we've looked at, even if this one's a little bit different. Thankfully, John tells us later in chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us what his purpose is. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll. But these signs, these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's son, and that believing you will have life in his name. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you will have life in his name. That's the reason John writes these stories down. Now, I've never been really the best at interpreting poetry or poetic language, but I do really enjoy when it seems to all come together, when the symbols find a way of speaking to you. And John is an immensely poetic writer, utilizing symbolism all the way through the gospel. Themes of dark and light, water and fire, sight and blindness. John paints a picture that is meant to stir our hearts more than our minds, I think. Much of the symbolism in the passage today points us to the divine presence in the life of Jesus. The most obvious example is Jesus' words to the disciples on the water. Some translations, like the one I read, say, it is I, do not be afraid. But others, like I think you saw on the screen, say, I am. Do not be afraid. And for anyone who knows their scriptures, John's readers certainly would have. This recalls that episode with Moses at the burning bush in the book of Exodus. Moses is tasked with telling the Hebrew people about this God. And he asks, well, what should I say is your name? And God replies, I am. John paints Jesus as the same I am, that same presence of challenge and comfort and power to the disciples as they struggle against the wind and the waves. And no doubt, also, John's Jewish audience hears the story and remember God's words through their beloved prophet Isaiah, It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. you may be passing through some waters in your life right now. Perhaps a stormy sea of anxiety or struggle, grief, pain, or uncertainty. Our world is certainly passing through some waters right now. And it starts to get a little old to talk about, but I know we're all aware every day, that the times we live in are unique and challenging in many, many ways. And it's in these times that we're called to step up, to rise to the challenges that face us, to give of ourselves for the sake of others who might be hurting more than we are. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, we're called to trust actively, to step out in faith and trust that God will guide us But this passage, this passage reminds us that there is only so much that we can do. Only so much power that we have over the storms around us. Only so much power that we have over the tumultuous waters around us in our lives. It's often in the midst of those boiling raging waters that Jesus comes to us and says it is I, do not be afraid. Perhaps calling us to let go of control to cease striving as the writer of Psalm 46 says and to simply allow ourselves to rest in the knowledge that there is a God who holds us in love. After all of the miracles And signs so far in this gospel, where Jesus heals and feeds. Jesus comes to his disciples with nothing other than a message about who he is that he is one who calms fears, who has power greater than ours, which is a very good thing. Water can be tumultuous. The Jewish people in Jesus's time were not traditionally seafaring people like some of their neighbors, the Phoenicians perhaps, who sailed the Mediterranean Sea and built warships and navies for battle. The Jewish people were a little bit more earthy and agricultural. They liked to have their feet on the land. They feared the sea, they respected it, and they recognized its power to disrupt and destroy Again, native Louisianans know a thing or two about this. Much more so than folks like myself from the East Coast. But water also brings life. Especially in the Gospel of John. And it doesn't seem to be an accident that here in this story, Jesus is calming their fears while standing upon life-giving water. This water that could bring them death also can bring them life. Perhaps sometimes it's just a matter of a perspective shift. Perhaps sometimes it's a matter of looking at the world around us or our lives around us, and instead of seeing tumultuous, stormy waters, though they're there, we instead see a possibility of God bringing something good, of God providing a loving presence in the midst of the storm. Perhaps sometimes a miracle is all in the way that we look at the world around us. Many of you I know are familiar with Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite favorite spiritual writers. He's got this lovely little book called Wishful Thinking, a Theological ABC, where he gives little short pithy paragraphs defining uh, different theological concepts. And this is what he has to say about miracles in that book. A cancer inexplicably cured, a voice in a dream, a statue that weeps. A miracle is an event that strengthens faith. It's possible, he says, to look at most miracles and find a rational explanation in terms of natural cause and effect. It's possible to look at Rembrandt's Supper at Emmaus and find a rational explanation in terms of paint and canvas. Faith in God, he says, is less apt to proceed from miracles and miracles from faith in God. Now to be clear, I don't think that what Beekner is saying is that if you just have enough faith, God will agree to do miracles in your life. I don't think that's how God works. I think what Beekner is saying is that perhaps what we might perceive as miracles are happening around us all the time. And that our releasing control over the world around us, releasing our tight grasp on things we can't understand, sometimes helps us shift our perspective, cause us to look at the world with a little more wonder, a little less cynicism and angst, maybe a little more hope. The final symbol that we should be aware of from this story is one which is right in front of us the whole time, though it might elude us without the proper perspective. This would be painfully obvious to John's earliest readers, his Jewish readers. John includes seven signs in his gospel. Which in some ways is a very clear and direct nod to the seven days of the creation narrative in Genesis. Again, John is big on symbolism. And of course, at the beginning of John's gospel, if you've read chapter one, he makes clear that Jesus is the word and that in the beginning was the word that was with God and was God. This sounds very, very much like Genesis. When we think about that ancient story of how all things were made, we remember God hovering over the waters in the darkness, about to bring light and form and shape to creation. Jesus hovers over these waters in John 6. He says to his disciples, I am, do not be afraid. One of seven signs to remind us of the days of creation. And John, I think, would have us here with a lot of hope. Look at the new creation that Jesus is bringing. Look at the life and the vision and the healing and the full bellies and the hope that we can see all around us if we are looking at the world properly for looking at a world held in the loving arms of God rather than simply one which is at the mercy of our best efforts. For this ancient people who needed to be reminded that God was with them, Jesus gives a visible image of the loving presence of the divine. For us, perhaps a similar type of people who need to be reminded That political fights, wars, inflated economies are not all there is to this world. To folks like us, Jesus gives us a visible image that there is one who is at work, making all things new. One especially who has power greater than ours my friends, that is incredibly good news, amen. For our time of reflection this morning, I invite you to encounter some silence together, and perhaps God's presence with you in the silence. If you feel that you need a little bit of extra hope right now, or peace or comfort, I invite you to imagine that scene from John 6. Imagine Jesus coming to his disciples and saying, don't be afraid. There may be efforts that you need to take in the world to help bring healing, but right now, allow God to do that for you.